Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with, for the second time on the show, Nika Anani. Nika, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So the first time we talked, you must have been maybe a year ago. You were in the middle of working on this manuscript for this book, Lifetime to Legacy, which you were kind enough to send me a courtesy copy of that I read. And when people write books and they come on the show, my first question is always how like, hard and painful was it and, and what motivated you to go through what is a fairly arduous process? Oh my goodness, great question. The hardest thing I've probably ever done, but also the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Writing the book really was a test of my discipline, of my motivation, of my mental fitness, and also of really testing just how passionate I am about the work that I do. And putting it out into the world was a labor of love. It started, the journey actually started back in April, 2020. And you're working on this thing privately and no one knows you're working on this thing. And suddenly you then start getting feedback way after the fact. But it's just so rewarding to have just your, your legacy of knowledge in a book where oftentimes throughout my, my time as consultant, a lot of folks have similar questions and similar struggles. And I thought it'd be helpful just to have a book that could at least address some of those common questions. And then should folks want further closer work one-on-one or further education, other resources, one can point them in the right direction. 
And because we know each other, we've done this already, I skipped the bio. So let's do that to give folks a little bit of a context here who didn't read, who didn't listen to the first conversation, although you should go back and listen to it. Nika is a speaker, author, and a legacy planning consultant for family firms. She is a co-founder of African Family Firms, a nonprofit community of family businesses. And, and the reason I wanted to start off with that question was there are a lot of things that we all did during COVID that seemed like a good idea at the time, projects that were started that never concluded. Yeah. And so I think it's a real testament to your work ethic that you were able to actually push it all the way through because I'm sure once the world opened back up, meetings start happening, travel starts happening, et cetera. And that must've been challenging to stay focused enough to get this across the finish line. Indeed, but I had accountability partners that kept me in check. <laughs> so I had announced the book to my community and to my social media and my mailing list in August. 2021. And that really kept me accountable because folks would email me, message me when I meet up with them. How's the book going? When are you going to complete it? When is it coming out into the world? So that was really helpful. Yeah. People always recommend that if you want to achieve something, shout it to the world. That way you feel like you're accountable <laughs> to your friends and family. So that's certainly the, the case there. So interesting, this, the, the subtitle, A New Vision for Multi-Generational Family Businesses with a real focus on Africa in particular. Could you maybe describe the difference for listeners between how American families think about legacy versus an African family concept of what legacy would mean? Mm. I think in the American context, the concept of legacy is a lot more, we see a lot more multi-generational families in foundations, family offices and family businesses. However, in the African context, it's still a relatively new concept yet to be seen. Very few families, I think the oldest family business on the continent is fourth generation. And so most family businesses are navigating moving from G1 to G2. And there's a lot of question around, can this actually be done on the African continent, given our economic landscape, which is a lot more dynamic, political landscape, which is a lot more dynamic, and our culture, which allows, we see larger families, more fluidity in the definition of who families are, et cetera, and so on and so forth. So the concept of the book is really to provide a vision that legacy is attainable for families. And it starts with practical steps. I think this whole world of family enterprise can feel quite overwhelming because it's multidisciplinaries that one has to think about from the tax, the financial planning, to the wealth planning, to HR, to psychology, to the family side, to philanthropy, and so on and so forth. And it can feel quite overwhelming. And the, the point of the book was to break it down into actionable, practical steps that families can take on their own to get started in their legacy journey. Yeah, you've got this great anecdote that you were a guest on this television program that was wildly popular, right, in Africa. And... I assume you walked into it thinking that they were going to throw you some softballs to get you warmed up. And then they just go out the, right out the gate by saying, why can't African families or, or companies owned by, by families be multi-generational? What's the problem? What are we doing wrong? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fairly big question to throw at somebody, but you have this great data point that only 2% of businesses in Africa, only 2% of businesses in Africa have been able to move past generation one and how to address that. I want to be careful in the conversation not to think of Africa as a monolith, right? There's many different cultures, many different countries, nations, religions, ethnicities, et cetera. But it does seem like it is a 
continent-wide issue. How much of you think is this, the external factors that you mentioned in terms of political dynamism mm-hmm. and challenges versus some of the inherent cultures that might exist within some of these countries themselves? I think it's a combination of factors. I actually think the most important factor that's contributing to this 2% phenomenon is lack of awareness, lack of education, and lack of a vision really with respect to how families can transition their enterprising activities from generation to generation. It's almost become the default that when a founder passes away, his or her estate just crumbles to pieces. The family ends up in crazy amounts of conflict and have to settle all sorts of debts and everyone fends for themselves and starts again on their kind of wealth building journey. And so the essence of the book is to, I guess, a lot of the education and awareness that's been accessible in the Western nations, predominantly in the US and lots of universities that, you know, look at family enterprises and lots of communities, lots of education programs, resources, and so on and so forth. And peer groups where folks can learn from one another. The basis of the book is to provide that awareness to the community to start to, you know, stimulate their thinking with respect to a vision that they may not have necessarily thought was accessible to them. Of course, the other factors, the political dynamism, the economic volatility, the setup of the family structure does mean that it's a lot more, we're complicating the situation somewhat. However, with careful, considerate planning, that can be achieved. And when we look at comparable economies and societies like Southeast Asia or Latin America, they've been more successful transitioning wealth and businesses. So that cannot be the sole factor that's driving the 2%. I think it's the education and awareness. Yeah, it was interesting in preparation of this conversation, our family is a member of a family office conference networking peer-to-peer learning organization called IPI Campton. Campton, now that the world's kind of back open, they're launching more international events. And I looked on the schedule and there's not a single event in Africa. Yeah. There's multiple events in Southeast Asia. There's, I think, one or two in South America, which is really just like, you know, and even in YPO world, you know, you and I yeah. are both YP- YPOers, incredible network, obviously. It's interesting. They loop in Middle East, North Africa, and then it's pretty much nothing. And then South Africa has got a pretty vibrant world, but that sub-Saharan space, there's really not a ton of resources put to work there. And so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways that I'm sure there's a lack of education because there's a lack of exposure. And then people don't realize that they can go and connect with other people there. Have you seen that changing at all recently or, or not? That was really why myself and my co-founder established African Family Firms, is that there was this missing gap in serving African family businesses. There was no structured organization. There was no structured curated education for the sub-Saharan African context. However, I am seeing an increase in awareness through the work that we've been doing and through the resources, through the events we've been putting together. A lot more international organizations are now thinking through what are the nuances on the African continent and how can we serve our African clients better. Particularly when we think about it, like a lot of families are geographically dispersed and cross-border. So you may have some family members in the West, in the US or the UK or in Europe or Canada and straddling their business activities on the continent. So it's becoming increasingly, and also on the philanthropic side as well, a lot of families do have philanthropy, philanthropic activities on the continent. So 
I think that will change. I think that was the essence of myself and my co-founder establishing African family firms was we felt there was a missing voice, the voice of the African family business and that our story also mattered. And, and also that we're strong believers in that in interdependence and learning from one another. There's some things that we may want to share with our foreign counterparts that they can borrow from us as well as we can learn from folks in the West and so on and so forth. So how do you how do you begin that conversation? I mean, one of the talking points that we discussed before we went live was actually getting this next generation involved and excited. How do you stop this historic, you know, one and done generational ownership of these companies? I think yeah, it has to start from considered conversations that are inclusive, that allow for the next generation to have a voice, where we move from them orienting and seeing them their relationship to the business or to the wealth is one of, I'm a legal owner and I have obligations to one of, I'm an emotional owner and I, I'm grateful for what I have here and the opportunity to contribute meaningfully to this family enterprise and also to the world. And so the conversation has to really be a conversation. Historically, we've seen a lot of founding generation kind of telling the younger generation what to do. And we're in an age just as a generation, the world over, where really rebelling against that and seeking greater levels of autonomy and agency and wanting to really see self-expression come to the fore, particularly as second generation business owners who often grapple with this psycho-emotional dimension of living in the shadow of a very successful founder. And so a common theme I see across all my clients is this real, this this quest for legitimacy, this quest for agency and autonomy and for their self kind of expression. And so it has to start from, yeah, having considered conversations, what's our individual vision and mission and purpose? What's our shared vision, mission and purpose? What are the strategic priorities we have as an enterprise? How are we going to get there? What's our individual roles, not just as mom and dad, but also the next generation. And there has to be flexibility and creativity with respect to how they'll be involved. I'm seeing more and more next gens having their own businesses and also serving on the board of the legacy enterprise or being involved in philanthropy and also being involved, you know, in the, as a strategic advisor for the family office, for instance, or doing deal flow for their family office, but also, you know, they, they're, they're, they have a nine to five, for instance. So. There has to be flexibility to accommodate the wishes and the desires of the next generation. Otherwise, we will have this situation where they're not interested, they're not engaged, and we get to a point where the founder wants to retire, makes the left and to the right. There's no one there that's interested, whether from a geographic perspective, because a lot of us are so globalized now, we move halfway across the world, or even from an emotional perspective. I've got my own family. I've got my own business. I'm not really interested in this manufacturing plant. And the founder then forced to think through potentially selling the business. But I don't necessarily think that even that outcome is a negative one because I, I often see founders talking about, oh my goodness, I have to sell. And everything that I've worked hard for is going down the drain. And I think this concept of legacy can be a dynamic one, right? So even selling the business and creating this liquidity gives an opportunity to Rethink what's the legacy we want to be leaving and living holistically beyond the business. It could enable philanthropy, for instance. It could be impact investing. It could be setting up a new business by 
that will be led by the next generation. So there has to be some level of openness and adaptation to the circumstance. And and that was one of the things that I wanted to get your perspective on. I think we touched on this during the first conversation, but what we're seeing in the States play out is very real transfer between this aging baby boomer generation to millennials or Gen Zs. And it's been talked about for a long time, but it's actually taking place as we speak. And it's fascinating to watch it play out within the next gen, especially. But in Africa, the demographics are incredible in terms of, I'm not sure if I get this exactly right, but in the next generation, it will be the youngest continent in the world. And there's this intersection between this huge youth movement and technology happening on the continent. Are next gens in Africa just thinking about things differently because they are such a large generational cohort and such a young, demographically young country and continent? I think there's a lot of similarities between next gen stateside and next gen in Africa. Whilst currently the median age is 18 on the continent, across the continent, whilst we have the population as a younger generation, we don't have the political power or the economic power. And so there's this situation where a lot of next gens are quite frustrated, whether it's in their family enterprises or in society at large, where when is, when is it going to be my turn to rule? But similarly to the US, it's like you've kind of alluded to great interest in the technology space, whether from an investing perspective or from the startup scene in terms of founding businesses and so on and so forth. And when we look at the largest exits over the last couple of years during the pandemic, incidentally, these have all been tech businesses. So there's a huge opportunity for founders and family enterprises to, to really embrace this new, new economy and this new wave that's coming on board and how that looks like within their family enterprises, you know, there's so many ways to skin a cat. It could be just infusing technology in terms of your ERP systems and processes and things like that. It could be setting up a new entity entirely that's really tech driven, but to ignore and neglect the interests of the rising generation and where the evolution of the industries are going towards, I think would be a huge loss to families. You referenced this in, in an earlier comment, but especially amongst the younger generation of affluent, educated folks, there is a massive diaspora Huge. within Europe and, and America. Are you seeing that escalate or are you, are you seeing people boomerang back to the continent? What Anecdotally, what are you seeing, feeling, hearing in terms of that transition happening? Yeah, no, the African diaspora has been quite large for the last 50 years, but COVID has led to, in a lot of African nations, economic crises, political instability, and unfortunately, the most economically affluent families have the mobility. They typically have a passport somewhere else or some residency somewhere else, and they chase the opportunities. So we are seeing that during the pandemic, I've seen so many people within my community, myself included, as well as within my clientele, moving stateside. And of course, that poses challenges for how do we then manage a business that's halfway across the world in a culture that's very face-to-face? And what's my role with respect to that? How do we transition from owner operators to owner, just owners, sole owners? What's the role that we play? How do we solve for tax, cross-border issues and so on and so forth, as well as the cultural element as well. There'll be cultural 
clashes that become even more exacerbated as we have more geographic dispersions. So I do think we are going to see a lot more um, the African diaspora, particularly amongst business families, increasing. However, there's a huge opportunity as well. So a lot of the capital, I believe the number is 80% of the capital that came onto the continent to fund expansion in 2021 came from the U.S. So sitting here in the U.S. or in the U.K. or what have you provides families with an opportunity to raise capital, also provides families with an opportunity to diversify and look into texting and so on and so forth and form strategic partnerships and so on and so forth. So the opportunity that, you know, this rising trend of diasporans is not necessarily a bad thing. I think families can embrace it as a great opportunity on their legacy journey. So the families that you work with, that you know, that get it right, this, especially this generational transition that we're focusing on today, what are the common characteristics? What are the fact patterns that you see over and over again, where they're able to actually execute on this? So planning, so planning from a long time, conversations. So having open conversations where the next gen can openly voice, I don't want to do this because I feel obligated and I feel I'm being boxed into a corner. Where's me in this? What's my individual mission and how do I balance that with the collective mission? And governance, people don't like that word. <laughs> it comes with negative connotations, but governance need not be heavy. Just having some, some forum in which the family understands family decisions are taken over here. Business decisions are taken over here. Investment decisions are taken over here and the interrelatedness between them. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer -peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today. One of the takeaways I, I got from the book was this concept in, again, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but in many African cultures, aversion to speaking about death. Yeah. That you're like it, intimating that you're wishing it upon the person that you're speaking with or within the room. That's obviously a pretty big obstacle when you're doing trust and estate planning long-term, right? So, <laughs> but it's interesting to get into because for Americans, Especially, I think we like talk about death too much almost. It's just all we talk about. It's the other side of the spectrum. So I'm curious how you've seen this play out within families and how you've been able to overcome this, mm. this cultural leaning. Yeah, no, it's definitely as a culture, we do have a strong, typically, aversion towards acknowledging death. And how I deal with it is to reframe the conversation from one around the death of the founder to one around the continuity of the family and the legacy of the family. So moving away from this individual who's going to pass away to more around the collective and what that continued legacy is. So not just what legacy do we want to be leaving, but what legacy do we want to be living? It just inspires a lot more optimism, positivity, and it also allows for families to think beyond themselves and start thinking the community and how that would look like the impact of their activities on their community long-term. You also mentioned in the book that in many African cultures, there's not necessarily a word for 
son versus daughter. It's just children. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of conversation happening in the States about gender identity. There are huge differences between how baby boomers think about gender versus millennials. Specifically, I always go back to, you know, women are positioned to inherit a majority of this generational wealth transfer that's about to occur. Mm. What's that dynamic like amongst African families? Mm. We don't necessarily have the data, but I can just go by my observation. Gender is a topic historically where as a continent, there was a lot more gender equity and actually women were very independent and very, our societies were largely matriarchal. But when we look at family enterprises today, a lot of my clients actually are female successors who are leading their family businesses. Parents are still alive, but they will be the CEO or the chair ladies of these businesses. And these are large enterprises. With respect to the larger, and that might also be self-selection. They probably choose me because I'm a young female myself and they identify with me and they relate to me, right? Um, but I do, I am seeing amongst rural, urban cosmopolitan Africans, there is less of an aversion with respect to this gender inequality within family firms that we commonly see. With respect to inheritance, though, I'm not necessarily quite sure on how that looks like. Historically, a lot of women were not allowed to inherit own land, own properties. It went to the boys. They were married off into another family. And that created a lot of financial insecurity on the part of these women. But it'd be interesting to see what that pans out over the next decade. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see. We talked we mentioned some of the challenges that some of these African companies have given the the government situation, the economic situation. But and maybe this concept that not having these such severe gender identity issues within their culture is one of them, but are there other benefits or positions of strength or strategic things that, you know, go to the positive of saying that these African companies are going to continue to thrive moving forward? Yeah, I think the challenging business environment often gives birth to a resiliency amongst these families. And a key theme I see is these families are very intentional about seeking opportunities beyond their family, their core business. So quite often here in the States, when I meet multi-generational families, they have one core operating business. Whereas in Africa, a lot of families are involved in four, even five, six, seven operating businesses that are under their control. And naturally, that does mean that they are, whilst these businesses are still in their geographic countries, in the same geographic countries, it does mean that they have a, a lot more diverse diversification by way of industry. And what that does is that for the next generation, it gives them an opportunity to kind of pick and choose. I'm interested in the media business, not really in the tech business. I'm interested in the agriculture business, not necessarily in the mining business and so on and so forth. So that's one element is that the difficult political and economic landscape has given birth to families being more insistent on seeking, building resilient business models, being very intentional about incorporating resiliency into their, into their operations. Whenever I, I speak to somebody who has a position like you, you're speaking to multiple families on a very confidential level and you get to know them intimately. I'm, I'm always curious we're recording this in October, 2022. There's a lot of volatility geopolitically and within the markets. 
what are the things keeping your clients up at night right now? Talent. Access talent. to talent. Access to talent. Worrying mm. about the rising generation moving internationally and how that impacts on the business. The family losing supposedly control over operating the business. Having to forge a new identity and move into a new dispensation as owners, not just owner managers. And then top business environments. So yeah, rising inflation. A lot of these countries are highly import dependent and foreign currency is very scarce and very expensive. And cost of running the business being very high. Those are the areas that I hear them talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard for Americans to understand how punishing it is to have such a strong U.S. dollar when yeah. you are, you know, a foreign operator. It's very challenging. You've mentioned it a couple of times, so I kind of want to dig in a little bit more, but it seems like there is a trend toward this bifurcation of ownership and operation where, and I'm reading tea leaves here, but it seems like families are really contemplating transitioning to non-family member operators for the first time. Right. Why do you think that's happening? What do you, how do you see that playing out? I'd love for you to just provide some more color there. Yeah, I think it's happening because skill sets. So the rising generation may not necessarily have the skill sets to lead and operate these businesses. And these businesses are going through a journey of increased professionalization. So this concept of because you've got this last name, your leader is not necessarily, that's very much, it's becoming quite outdated within the families I'm seeing. They're not necessarily thinking about it that way. They they want to see a continued enterprise into the future and they want the best person on the table. And I'm seeing that these families are becoming more intentional in preparing the rising generations and choosing roles for them. For instance, the client of mine is a CEO of her family business, not necessarily the CEO. And she's gone through a lot of training, attending courses, you know, exec courses for family business owners, joining communities like YPO and so on and so forth. I also think it's because, again, the rising generation are choosing to move beyond their home countries into other countries. So the, but what that means is a lot of these families have to be more institutionalized in terms of the processes and procedures within the family business where before it was dad that knew the cleaner and also knew all the board members made decisions like that. But we have to be intentional about building the processes and the procedures within the family business such that there's a lot more structure and that we also are able to attract talent to the fore who don't see the family business as one where to succeed, one has to have a certain last name, but instead it's based on their contribution and what they're bringing to the fore that they can succeed in the family enterprise. Yeah, it, it makes me think of a term that I learned about recently, horses for courses, a very British term. I didn't know what it meant. I had to look it up. But, you know, I, and for those who aren't aware, it basically means put people in a position where they can be successful based on their skill sets. Yeah. Very challenging conversation for all families. But I know within the American families, I know many of them have built up conditions or requirements for people to to attain leadership positions within the family company, especially if they have an operating organization. So for instance, they might have to go get an MBA or spend five years working at a, a different company within the same industry. Are you seeing those type of structures being built up within the families today to give people a pathway, but also guard against outright nepotism? Right. I am. I am seeing that. I've seen instances of families saying, actually, this family member 
is not prepared to come into the business right now. We need to work on values, work ethic, deepening their industry competence, and so on and so forth. We are seeing that, yeah, families are not necessarily thinking of their enterprises as a guaranteed place to work for the rising generation, but rather would want the rising generation to appreciate all it's taken to build the business and to contribute meaningfully to towards its future. What's the biggest misunderstanding that people have about African family companies or African family offices? Really? That's a very great question. I often hear that when I'm speaking to a lot of American families and American advisors, like, oh, wow, you have nonprofits that are set up and run by Africans, which a number of folks have expressed, you know, that there's very much this thinking that philanthropy is an American thing. And philanthropy is taken from the West to Africa, not necessarily that there's groom-groom philanthropy. And it's important to understand that African culture is very much built on communalism and interdependence. And as a result of that, a lot of individuals, a lot of companies bake philanthropy into their activities and business models. So you may not necessarily see an explicit third party foundation, but there are philanthropic activities going on. Families will often go back to their villages or hometowns of origin and support these villages and hometowns by way of infrastructure, employing members of the family or extended members of the family that are struggling, supporting orphans, supporting widows, supporting people at critical points in their lifetime. So philanthropy is very much something that as a continent we do practice. It just looks a little bit different from how you would see in the US. And I'm I'm curious, it triggers another question. And and again, every family's different, but is it Typical or atypical or still evolving where the the family has an operating company and an independent family office and then an independent foundation, or they often just mix together and just call different things. I mean, in America, it's a mixed bag, honestly, but we're seeing this kind of professionalization and bifurcation amongst those three different buckets. What's what's it like in, amongst African families? Quite often it's co-mingled, but with the rising generation moving to the West, a number of folks within my community, their conversations about we need to have independent activities and structures for these activities and perhaps leverage off the rising gens being in the West to start off a family office over there and so on and so forth. So it's evolving. I think as we alluded to, there are some families though that do have very explicit separate family offices, family foundations and family businesses, but by and large, most do not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's still evolving in the States, to be honest. So I, I'm not surprised by that answer. If people want to learn more about these family offices, family businesses in Africa, I know you're trying to highlight this, but there are there other resources or organizations? We mentioned YPO. Right. Are there groups that are very active domestically that have kind of international connectivity that people could engage with, I mean, resources, things that you found to be useful if there are folks listening who are part of that diaspora or just want to educate themselves? Right. So African Family Firms, the nonprofit we run, we do a lot of education and awareness building. So I'd recommend looking at that. Africa Philanthropy Forum also, they're like a similar organization, but specifically for philanthropy on the continent. And they build a lot of bridges with international donors and things like that as well. So I would recommend that as well. And Nelson 
Nelson Mandela University have the only family business center on the continent. So they have a lot of academic research on the space. I'd recommend checking them out as well. There's one family business center on the entire continent. It's crazy. It goes back to our, uh, to the start of the conversation where, I mean, now I, I don't know what the number is in the States, but I know obviously like Kellogg and Northwestern, Stanford, I mean, there's multiple, I think we just take it for granted the resources that we have available to us. Yeah. Right. And actually the Nelson Mandela University is quite South Africa centric. So there's need to have a lot more university academic centers across the continent and also not focus just on cosmopolitan urban Africa, but also rural Africa, which is where, like the US, most of the businesses are actually not in the big cities. They're actually in the hinterlands. Yeah, my wife's involved with a nonprofit that has an office here, but it, it supports a community in rural Kenya. And we hosted, gosh, maybe 10 Kenyans at our home on Friday night. And we talked about this exact, just, I think for Americans, it's very challenging because we still have like small towns and villages or mid-sized cities. But in Africa, oftentimes they have major metropolitan areas mm-hmm. and, they, and then just very rural places and there's not a lot in between. It's a huge demarcation between that experience or that culture. And so it's just something that we, you know, we just, we don't have the experience in necessarily. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. The book is terrific. Like I said, I, I kind of, I, I take a lot of notes and there is one thing I could tell that you're a YPO or really by, by the, by this creating a lifeline at the end. (laughs) <laughs> I had to go, I had to go through this exercise for my personal investing network forum, which I don't know if people know a lifeline is like in your own words, your own autobiography, typically like a PowerPoint presentation. And depending on the forum context, you can have a different focus. Mine was financial, but it's, it's like very therapeutic though, but it's really scary to go through. Could you maybe talk a little bit about why you recommend people doing this? And you think it's a it's a fairly easy exercise, but I promise you, it, it can get very deep very quickly. Oh, for sure. I think the whole idea of doing a lifeline exercise for yourself and also family members is quite often as family members, we don't know each other on a deeper level. And the whole concept is to think through the significant events that have happened throughout your life. And you know, three significant positive ones, three significant negative ones. And start looking at patterns that have emerged. Perhaps you notice after a difficult season, you start something new. Or you notice after a difficult season, you go into what's what I'm doing, bad habits that are not good for you. And it enables you to start projecting ahead. How would these the events you're going through right now, your current present time, influence your future? And what kind of characters or what kind of skill sets or what kind of activities do you need to start thinking about building in now to get to where you want to go to in the future? I think it's really helpful because as business owners, particularly first geners, the next generation often see them as giants. And they're these giants that are unattainable, that are unrelatable, and can be quite intimidated by them. The whole idea of the lifeline exercise is to start to humanize these giants and start to see that they also went through challenges and how did they overcome these challenges and start to understand the themes cut across their lives, the growth opportunities, the lessons that they learned, the wisdom that they gleaned, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful exercise. I just went through it and um, 
I highly recommend people kind of take the time to do it. I want to thank you so much for coming on and kudos on doing and actually writing this thing and getting it done because it's a lot of work. I've never done one, but I can imagine. If people are interested in engaging with you in terms of the work that you do with families or learning more about how they could gain connectivity to some of the sources that you mentioned, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, my website, www.nikkeanani.com. Over on there, you'll see links to all my social, my email address and some resources there as well. I have a podcast as well. So the links are, are on my website. We have a terrific podcast. I've been stealing a lot of your guests. Um, yeah. and I've, enjoyed, <laughs> I've been enjoying happy, your shows. Happy to bend more your way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrific. And, you know, thank you again for going in. I encourage people who, who listened, who enjoyed it, please do leave a review. Let us know what you enjoyed the most. And then a question that I've started asking my guests, new since you came on, what daily practice do you do that helps bring you peace to your life? Nice. It's a must do for me. Otherwise, like I'm a bit on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> things fall apart. Yeah, uh, things fall apart. Exercise. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Nika, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll have to do it again in a year and see what else you've been up to. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Brian, for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.